This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. The advancement of the internet, social media, and higher quality cameras means nearly anyone with a phone today has a hand in spreading news as it happens. Two authors argue the media played a role in promoting racism in America, like the 1915 film Birth of a Nation. But now it's become inextricably intertwined with the progress of the racial justice movement in this country. Mark Lamont Hill is a professor at Temple University, host of BET News and Upfront on Al Jazeera English. Hey, Mark, great to have you on Reset. Hey, good to be with you guys. Also with us is Todd Brewster, veteran historian and journalist. Welcome, Todd. Hi there, Sasha. How are you? Doing very well. Their book is called Seen and Unseen, Technology, Social Media, and the Fight for Racial Justice. Why write this book and why now? Well, uh, there's a couple reasons for writing the book and there's a couple reasons for writing it now. Um, you know, we're, we're venture, we've entered into a period where uh, technology is really the, the defining our lives. I mean, uh, we all carry around a, a very sophisticated piece of technology equipment with us in our pockets. Uh, we use it to uh, take pictures. We use it to film things. Uh, we, uh, we have turned over much of our life to it. Um, we organize ourselves around it. And um, increasingly, over the past few years, we've watched it become a tool for the democratization of media. Um, and people who did not have a voice are now able to have a voice, both in social media and through their use of the cell phone. We've seen that in the uh, story of uh, racial justice over the past few years, as um, uh, the, the people with uh, cell phone cameras have been able to, to film uh, these brutal assaults by police on, on black people that, uh, of course, black people have been aware of for a very long time. And have uh, com- you know given voice to, but to be able to show it, to have it on film, to see the ubiquity of this kind of terrible uh, piece of violence in our culture is is a very powerful thing. So we thought it was very important to both acknowledge that and to examine these technologies for how they work and how they they both can um, uh, art- articulate and also deceive. And you write about the 1915 film, The Birth of a Nation, as I mentioned in the book. How's that movie still impacting us today, Todd? And, and how does it continue to mirror American life? Sure. So, so the, the, what we didn't just tell the stories of the racial conflict, of the racial incidents of the past few years. Um, George Floyd, uh, Ahmaud Arbery, uh, uh, Kyle Rittenhouse in Kenosha. We, we tell those stories in great detail, but we also show that these stories didn't come out of a void. They, they reach back to American history, the themes that are part of, of, our, of our understanding of, of those episodes really go back to the 19th century. And they go back to the 19th century um, uh, uh, in, in the form of technology as well. You referenced the birth of a nation, but even before that, we had the the still photograph that yeah. was a very powerful image, both in terms of um, uh, representation of the humanity of black people, and also um, as a uh, as a uh, journalistic tool uh, to show the abuse that was being uh, delivered to them, in part through the lynching movement of the yeah. late 19th century. But the birth of a nation came out in 1915, and it was a story that, that ostensibly um, uh, uh, t- retold the story of the Civil War. Uh, with the South, in a sense, winning. It, it helped establish the what's known as the lost cause, the idea that, the, that the, the Civil War was not about slavery. It was about states' rights. It's about the South uh, erupting in, in response to uh, uh, federal uh, control, uh, the control of industrial capitalism, 
and that um, uh, what was needed was for the country to come to grips with the fact that its original principles, um, uh, uh, the ones that uh, did support slavery, uh, yeah. supported the definition between the races, needed to be um, uh, uh, re-embraced. We have had the ability to, to review video and, and, and photo evidence for a long time now. But now with social media, we can do, do it at record speed. So, so do you think that social media has helped us or harmed us? I think it's done a little bit of both. I think that it, it's done a little bit of both. We can uh, think about help in lots of ways. I mean, we're not able to tell the story of George Floyd without social media and technology. We're not able to tell the story of Maud Arbery without technology and social media or Breonna Taylor. Because even though the technology uh, was uh, not there to capture the killing of Breonna Taylor, the way that we were able to say her name, mm -hmm. the way that we were able to spread the message and build the campaign to get some sense of justice for her or Ahmaud Arbery comes through social media. Now, social media, though, is not uh, – it doesn't have a moral position in and of itself. There's nothing inherently moral or democratic about these tools and technologies. What these tools and technologies allow us to do is access our traditions of, of democracy and freedom fighting and justice and such. But it can also be used to spread misinformation and disinformation. And so right. I try not to be too, uh, I try not to be too romantic about social media and technology. I try not to pretend that they're silver bullets. Instead, I think about them as spaces of possibility, as sites of possibility that allow us to access our best instincts and some of our worst. Yeah. You know, we talk about the, the vivid and very powerful cell phone video of, of George Floyd's murder that truly haunted many of us. And this is right across the globe. I think back to, to seeing really grainy footage on TV news of, of Rodney King's brutal beating back in the 90s. I was a kid back then, but I, I remember being horrified and also very confused as to what was going on. Mark, can you talk more about social media's role in it, not just in the fight for racial justice, but also in police accountability? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. And if you think about that moment 31 years ago, Rodney King is beaten, it's a moment where the technology helped us hold police accountable. Suddenly, right. it wasn't just the police officer's word against the so-called criminal. Suddenly, we had eyes on the police. The video camera was able to capture it, and it was happenstance. I mean, what, what are the odds of somebody happening to be a photographer or, or, or working on developing right. uh, skills as a, as, a, as a photographer? On his balcony, out at on night. His balcony. Yeah. yeah. I mean, what are the odds of that? I mean, what are the odds of, of having a camcorder, a battery, a VHS tape ready to go while a beating is happening? The odds were infinitesimally small. But it happened, and suddenly the, we got a window, the world got a window into the lived experiences of so many people in urban America, specifically black, brown, and poor people. And so that moment uh, was a moment of police accountability to an extent. And like you, I was confused by what I saw. Mm -hmm. I, was, I couldn't understand why they, why they were beating him so badly, but I also couldn't understand why there would be any debate about this. I, couldn't, I, we, I laughed at the prosecutor's uh, 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 lack of confidence that they could win this thing. I said, Why are they, what are you talking about? They got it on tape. And then you got the defense attorneys who are saying, no, but don't believe your lying eyes. Believe that this man was a PCP monster who was going to beat up the police and tear up L.A. if, if they hadn't held him down. Right. And so all of this is happening. 
And it was a reminder, again, that these things aren't, aren't silver bullets. Rather, they, 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 people bring to the text something important. They bring to the video their own biases and beliefs that shape how they interpret it. And so when we talk about George Floyd now or these other cases now, it's the same thing. The footage is now ubiquitous. It's not just a random plumber on his balcony. Now we all have video, video camera. We all are capable of being high-quality photographers and, and live streamers, and we're all making content constantly. Um, but the other problem still lingers, which is once we get this ubiquitous surveillance out into the world, once we see George Floyd or once we see Ahmaud Arbery, or we also might see Walter Scott or Eric Garner, cases that didn't get us the kind of justice we wanted. So we yeah. still have a long way to go. Todd, you know, this is exactly what you explore in Seen and Unseen, right? You know, that several instances of racism and, and racial injustice, they're linked to media and they're linked to technology. Give us some more moments in history that have been pivotal, you would say, to, to the racial justice movement. Well, we talked about the birth of a nation and we talked about it establishing um, a, uh, uh, a, a, a movement towards what's called the myth of the lost cause. Right. We we, we um, uh, uh, the, the rewriting of history for the Civil War, as if the, the South had not been fighting to protect slavery. Um, and and that that tone, that myth uh, travels throughout the 20th century with with um, more movie making. Gone with the Wind, for instance, um, uh, is, an, is a kind of sentimentalization of the South and the plantation society that existed before the uh, before the Civil War, mm-hmm. and it reacquaints Americans with a kind of kind of um, uh, with the, with the notion of Mammy, right, the uh, the black maid who is loyal to the family and who uh, knows her place. In fact, the actress who, who played that role in Gone with the Wind, and when it won the Oscar, had to sit at a table uh, segregated away from all the white actors that were in the room, right. which shows you exactly how how um, the, the myth was being reestablished uh, there by Hollywood. Uh, so that, that's the film. We also have, you know, very powerful photojournalism from the middle part of the 20th century uh, that helped to, to, to uh, promote the idea of racial justice. We think of the photographs of the 1960s during the civil rights movement, particularly the, the March on Selma. We, we, we think of the uh, fire hoses, uh, being used on the protesters in Birmingham and the and the indignity and the uh, outrage that people felt when they saw those photographs taken by photojournalists who were able to show what was happening again the way we saw what was happening in in um, uh, Minneapolis uh, two years ago yeah. uh, to a country that that had was unaware of the extent of um, of injustice that was being uh, um, uh, practiced uh, throughout its, its in its name. I mean, you think one of the interesting things is in, in the 1960s that photojournalism was done, of course, by professionals. Even Rodney King, as as Mark referred to, was a was a budding uh, the, the, the man who shot the picture was a, uh, had ambitions to be a budding uh, a, a photographer, a filmmaker. Right. He had bought this equipment that he wanted to try out. He walks out into his balcony, and what does he see? He sees this event happening in front of him. But today, when you look at who 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 shot the film of of George Floyd, it was Darnella Frazier, a young a woman. a young woman, yeah. Yeah, who had had no professional ambitions. Uh, um, she just happened to have the tool in her pocket, and she happened to be in a place where uh, history was being made right in front of her. And she pulled out that camera and very bravely uh, recorded the image in front of us, which is also, as Mark ref- referenced before, gave, gave the power of surveillance uh, that's usually a monopoly of the state mm-hmm. to the people. So we see both sides of this, right? I mean, we see both the the um, the way that that, that technology has been used to uh, 
uh, establish and reinforce injustice. And we see now increasingly the ability of people to fight back. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and we are talking with the authors of a new book, Seen and Unseen. It's about how the power of visual media has affected the discussion of race in America. Our guests are media studies professor and TV host Mark Lamont Hill and historian Todd Brewster. Hey, Mark, has the movement that George Floyd's murder ignited, has that lost its flame? It's been two years. Oh, no, I I think that, you know, part of what we have to always understand when we talk about resistance movements is that there are bright sort of shining lights that we see, Mm -hmm. and then there are the consistent actions that take place when those lights aren't shining. You know, when Mike, when Trayvon Martin is killed and then Mike Brown is killed a couple of years later, um, there was no gap in action and organizing. When Mike Brown um, was killed and we have this kind of lull before George Floyd is killed, people said, oh, Black Lives Matter and movement for black lives and organizing and, and you know, police reform and, and police abolition and all this stuff that's gone. You know, Trump swiped it all away and, and that's all everybody's focused on. It's like, no, that's what the media is focused on. The movements never stopped pressing. Um, the movements never stopped uh, pushing and advocating for uh, for justice. And that's why when George Floyd is killed in Minnesota, it took like half a second for people to mobilize and organize. In fact, people were more mobilized and organized than they had been in decades because mm-hmm. they had never stopped doing the local work that took place after Ferguson. And one of the places where you see that work happening in day-to-day life is social media. You realize that there are actions taking place all around the country. Some are digital, some are virtual, That some are on the ground, some are analog, some are old school. Some people still have flyers and protest signs, but it's all happening. And so I don't allow the kind of spectacle of corporate media to be the determining factor as to whether or not resistance is happening or whether or not the flame is still lit. Yeah. Uh, but I, but I think the next time something happens, you'll see, again, an even bigger force. You'll see even more consistency and even more discipline and organized resistance. And the reason will be because we've used these technologies, these tools, and these tactics uh, to help us get free even when no one's paying attention. Let's stick with um, talking about the role of mainstream media for, for just a second here. Because, you know, when covering these incidents, we're talking about the George Floyds, uh, Ahmaud Arbery's murder, Trayvon Martin's death, if we go back— years ago, um, we're seeing this pattern of journalists reporting on their pasts, flawed pasts, and they're victims. They're people who can't defend themselves. They're no longer here with us. How does that impact perspectives, Mark? Todd, you still with us? You know, I'm still here. Maybe we'll smart. Oh, okay. I can answer. I can answer. Oh, you're both here. I'm sorry, Todd. Okay. <laughs> go ahead, Todd. I was going to say, I think Todd has a better perspective on this, but go ahead. Go ahead. Okay, so I, I, you know, I was about to say before when when Mark was talking about how it doesn't stop, it continues. One of the ways that it continues is that, you know, the the video, for instance, of George Floyd, was was startling. It was shocking. It was disturbing. And the world over, the shame that was was felt throughout the country, the recognition that what black people have been saying for so long, became quite pervasive. Then emerged the counter narrative, right? And this is what I think you're referring to. And the counter narrative was, well, look, he wasn't such a great guy. He, mm-hmm. he was a drug addict. He had a criminal past. Um, as, as if there, and then even even a counterfeit a, money. Yeah, yeah. And one of the commentators that we mentioned in the in the book was like, well, you know, uh, Derek Chauvin uh, um, doesn't need to to be uh, 
um, uh, a defendant. Look at how look at he had a much better life than, than George. As if it was a competition between their you know their resumes. Uh, in fact, uh, th- that conversation has to keep on going. The one where we come back and say, well, no, it's not important whether. Uh, George Floyd had a criminal past. He's a human being. He has dignity. And he he was murdered in, in broad daylight. I mean, it, the, the, in other words, the, the, the video, the pictures, the uh, the technology starts the conversation, but the conversation has to keep on going. Yeah. And, and, and this is the role of somewhat of the we call them the curators, you know, the people who come in and say, this is what this media is about. This is what this story is telling us. This is what we need to recognize from what we're seeing on our screens. And it's necessary because there will be other people coming in and saying, no, you're seeing this instead. You're seeing a, you're seeing a drug addict. You're seeing someone who was um, a, a low life, somebody who uh, sort of didn't deserve to live. Mm-hmm. They were a criminal. Uh, you, it's not just George Floyd. If you go to the story of, of Kenosha where um, Kyle Rittenhouse, the teenager who arrives from Illinois and, and um, uh, in, in his defense of the streets uh, brings his, his – uh, um, his, his weaponry and ends up killing two people there. Well, you know, one of them was um, um, just out of a mental hospital. Another one had a small infraction um, uh, with the law. Uh, these then come out again as a way of saying, well, you know, okay, he did kill them, but they were they didn't deserve to live anyway. Right. Um, and you know, th- these kinds of messages need to be countered, and and I and so the media can start the conversation, but we have to continue it. Mark, there's a chapter in the book about the, quote, influencers, as you write it. Who do you think are today's most prominent influencers? Like, who's changing the way we talk about racial injustice? That that that, that addendum to the question changes my answer a lot. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, the biggest influences are often people who we don't, oh, I wouldn't want influencing anything, you know? I mean, <laughs> you know, the way we talk, the way we dress, you know, what kind of foods we eat, mm-hmm. you know? You know, whether I'm buying a flat tummy tea or whether, I, you know, whether I'm deciding what <laughs> the hottest trainer. music is. It's all, yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's a whole but, – but but people who would maybe just be important people or people with influence now have the almost professionalized title of influencer. Um, and while that's somewhat scary for culture, it can also be scary for race talk because some of the people who shape how we talk and think about race aren't necessarily as informed as we'd like them to be. Uh, some people who are influencing the way we talk about race are people who – produce video and and, uh, and, and still footage uh, of black death. And so the kind of re-traumatization of, of, of the community mm-hmm. becomes a central way that they think about race and race talk is to show all the black people that get killed. And I mean, imagine if what IDB Wells Barnett only did was show lynchings, right? No advocacy, no analysis, just lynchings, right? And, and there are some people who make their trade just showing the lynchings, just showing the beatings. Um, I, I won't name those names in particular because I don't think that's productive, but but I'll just say I, I think that some of the people influencing race conversations here are, are people who uh, don't have a, an investment in deep analysis and simply focus on the spectacle, even if they're well-intentioned. I'm not saying necessarily that they're all cynical and hucksters, although some are. I think a lot of it, though, is about you know social media trades on the spectacle, and the spectacle is not the whole story. Um, but I also think that there are a, a bunch of powerful, interesting, smart activists and organizers who are forcing us to talk about race in complicated and nuanced ways. Yeah. There are websites and, 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 and uh, social media spaces 
that are unpacking uh, policies and phenomena that, that deal with race in ways that I think are counterintuitive to the average person, which I think is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's a bunch of scholars who before were locked in academia, and now we have access to these brilliant people because they have Twitter accounts and and, and Instagram and Facebook. Yeah. And not just talk about acad- academic sort of obscurity, but we're forced to actually make our ideas accessible. Well, you know, one big message that I got from seen and unseen was, you know, if we don't learn from our past, we're we're bound to repeat it. Is that accurate? Amen. Is that accurate, Mark? And what else do you hope folks take away from the book? Yeah, I'll, I'll just quickly give Todd the last word. I, I, I think that, yeah, history will continue to repeat itself. Uh, or as, they, as Twain said, you know, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes, it rhymes. You know, there's a way that we'll see the patterns and the the consistencies of of um, of history in this um, if we don't if we don't change it. Uh, but there's also a way that looking through history allows us to recognize, and this is what I hope people take away that the best of our tradition has always been using the, the tools and the technologies of the moment to help us get more free. Mm-hmm. We've always done it as the book shows, and we're going to keep doing it. Todd? Yeah, I would, um, uh, you were talking about influencers and the one that, that Mark didn't mention that has a big role in the book is as a man who's been dead for more than uh, 40 years. James so, Baldwin. Uh, James Baldwin, yeah. who uh, um, had sort of a, a controversial uh, uh, um Reputation in his own time because he among both blacks and whites because he of his uh, um, uh, delivery of the cold hard truth I would argue and um, uh, and one of the things that that Baldwin says and he's and I reference him as an influencer because he is so often quoted on social media even though he's been long gone he says um, uh, not everything that we face can be changed but nothing can be changed until we face it and that's that's sort of the message, I think, of the book in some ways, that uh, we have new tools to help the country face what we have done, to face the, 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 um, the sin of, of, of racial prejudice and, and racial violence, and that um, uh, we need to recognize that while these tools are there for us to see it more clearly, we need to, we need to also rely upon curators, people who step up and, and point out what is really, uh, point out the truth that these, that yeah. these media demonstrate. Todd Brewster is a veteran historian and journalist. Mark Lamont Hill is a professor at Temple University and host of BET News and Upfront on Al Jazeera English. Now, they will be at the American Writers Festival this Sunday at the Chicago Cultural Center promoting their new book, Seen and Unseen, Technology, Social Media, and the Fight for Racial Justice. Mark and Todd, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for listening. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We've got more for you on the podcast, WBEZ's Reset, wherever you listen.